Indeed, we're in Acts 27, the penultimate chapter. Nearing the end of this, um, this book about the, the life of Jesus. Maybe that sounds a little odd to the ear, but that really is how we should view the book of Acts. The Gospels are historical account of the life of Jesus his ministry as he was here on earth. And then the book of Acts is a book about the, the work of Jesus through the apostles. This isn't about them. They're not the stars of the show. It's still about Jesus and how he rules his church and how he protects his church. Acts 27. We'll read the whole chapter. I'll just say now, uh, so you can kind of be clued in, we're really going to focus on Uh, Verses 21 through 26. 21 through 26. So uh, perhaps keep that in mind as we near that portion of the text. This is the word of the Lord to us today, friends. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia... We put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And just remember, this we language means that Luke, the author, is there too. So it's Paul, Aristarchus, and Luke. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near which was the city of Lassia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast, Passover, was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. The centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said, Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter, and the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sartis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was 
at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail for, for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. For it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail at the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. Bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surface. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. As far the reading of God's inerrant, infallible, life-giving word to us, a fascinating story. Keeps you on the edge of your seat, uh, especially if you understand um, what Luke is talking about when it comes to nautical things. If not, then maybe not so much the edge of your seat. Um, I know there are some of you here who've got boats and you're interested in these things, so this is a chapter for you. I am not in that camp. And um, some of these words, the towns and the cities are hard to pronounce. That was no big deal for me. It's what, how does a ship work? What is, what is this? What is tackle? You know, these are the things I'm Googling last week. But um, even though there's so many details that you can kind of lose the forest for the trees, uh, we do want to step back briefly before we dive into the details just to say there is something really important about this chapter as a whole and all of the detail that it gives it is an important chapter for the appreciation of the Bible as being the inspired and infallible Word of God. Upon first reading, 
It is so detailed that unless you have some nautical background, uh, you can become lost. But this detail has helped to prove the reliability of Luke's account, that Luke who's writing the story. Uh, Acts 27 helps prove the historicity of the book as a whole. And remember, if you can rewind back to when we started Acts in chapter 1, the book as a whole actually includes a whole other book, Luke. They go together. So if you look at the beginning of uh, the Gospel of Luke, this is what we're told. Turn there, Luke chapter 1. And the first four verses. Luke's writing to this mysterious character, but clearly an important one, Theophilus. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The whole reason uh, Luke writes, Luke Acts as we call it, you flip back to Acts chapter 1, you see it's part 2. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he'd been, uh, after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So, um, Luke himself connects the books, Luke and Acts, both to Theophilus. And yet, the point is to have certainty concerning the things uh, that Theophilus has been taught about Jesus, about the Christian faith. How does a chapter like 27, Acts 27, um, help us have certainty? Well, here's the point. Uh, You don't write a chapter, or you don't write a story, excuse me, Uh, about this shipwreck in chapter 27 unless it really happened, unless you were really there. You don't give the details that we find in 27 unless you were really there, unless it really happened. And so we then make an argument from the lesser to the greater. If we have confidence in the historicity of Acts 27 based on Luke's firsthand account, firsthand knowledge of what's going on, then we have a confidence in the historicity of the book of Acts as a whole. And remember, the book of Acts as a whole includes a whole other book. So that means we can believe what we find in the Gospel of Luke. And what do we find there? We find the most important thing we need to find, the account of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 27 is important for you to be able to say, I believe what the Bible says about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because I believe what Luke says about a shipwreck. It's as simple as that, but it's also profound and profoundly important. But there's another thing that this chapter does, apart from proving um, that a shipwreck really occurred in the Mediterranean and therefore should help us uh, trust the word of God. It proves that God spared the lives of those on board. That seems to be kind of the main point of this, how God spared the lives of those on board. John Calvin says, Luke sets down Paul's voyage by sea, most of all to this end, for this purpose, That we may know Paul was brought to Rome wonderfully by the hand of God and that the glory of God did many ways appear excellent in his doings and sayings even on that very journey. And so uh, Calvin goes on to say this um, more establishes Paul's apostleship. The fact that he had the the Lord as his guardian God um, uh, sort of... um, 
carrying him along on his journey so that he could accomplish his mission. Essentially, then we find two things here. From Acts 27, we see that Paul should be trusted. He's a real deal apostle. But most importantly, God is to be trusted, the one who preserves his people. And now that's the, the question that's put to the passengers aboard this ship time and time again. Do you trust the Lord? Not so much do you trust Paul. Paul will make that argument in many of his epistles. You need to believe that my um, apostolic authority is genuine, that I've been called from God. Galatians says, the gospel I preach I did not receive is not, the, um, is not a gospel of man, but I received it from a revelation. He wants people to know I'm the real deal. Well, this helps confirm that, the fact that he was preserved so wondrously. And yet that's not the point to those on board. The point to those on board is God is to be trusted. God is to be trusted. And we have to ask that question as well. Do we trust God? The chapter forces the question on us in at least two specific ways. The first is this. Do we trust in God's sovereignty? Do we trust in God's sovereignty? God's sovereignty is written on every page of history, just as it is written on every page of the Bible. But there are certain passages, certain pages, where you can see it all the more clearly. And Acts 27 is one of those. God's sovereignty comes shining through. Do we trust it? Do you trust in God's sovereignty? Uh, Look with me at verse 10. Paul gives his own gut instinct about how the journey will fare that they're about to embark on. Um, Verse 9 had provided a temporal clue for us when he refers to uh, Passover the fast had just uh, concluded. So that puts this event in the fall when Passover was observed. And um, in the fall, the Mediterranean, Mediterranean voyages were too dangerous. And that's why Paul says in verse 10, Sirs, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only the cargo on the ship, but even our own lives. We're going to die if we do this. Now, this is Paul's intuition. There's no special... Revelation from God. This is his gut feeling. You know, I've been around a while. I see uh, that the seasons are changing. This is a bad idea. But when we come to verse 27, and I want us to turn there now. As I said, we're going to spend most of our time here. We go from Paul's intuition to God's revelation. Paul was close. His gut instinct was mostly right, but not exactly right. They were going to encounter danger, but he thought everybody would die or people would die. Nobody dies, and this is what God tells him. Since they were without food a long time, Paul stood up, verse 21, and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And we ask, well, how does, why is he changing his tale? He said, before people would die. Well, verse 23, for this very night there stood before me an angel of God, God to whom I belong, the God whom I worship. And the angel said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart. Take heart. Second time he's told them to take heart. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. So what's Paul doing here? When you look at verse 27, it sounds a little immature. It almost sounds like Paul's saying, told you so. You should have listened to me. You guys don't know what you're doing. You think you know better. You should have listened to me. Told you so. But that's not the point. He's, trying, he's not trying to rub it in their face. He's trying to protect them from further harm. And he's trying to steady their spirits. How so? Well, the reason he brings up what happened in the past is to suggest this. Follow the logic here. If he was uh, right, or almost right, nearly right, back when it was just his gut, 
when it was his own intuition. Well, now they should really listen to him because he comes with a message from God. And that's, and, and what's the message? The message is the storm is going to get worse. The ship will be lost. Verse 26, we must run aground. Why must they? And the answer, of course, is because God ordained it. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, as our confession teaches. The storm is coming from God. But notice, it doesn't come from God, or I want to suggest to you, it doesn't come from God in judgment. Right? Remember Jonah, right? Boys and girls, you know the story of Jonah and the whale, and he's on a ship, he's running away from God, and what happens? A storm comes. And all the lives of everybody on board that ship are threatened because of the storm. And Jonah himself acknowledges, I'm the reason this storm is here. Because God is judging me. Because I disobeyed him. It's a storm of judgment. And so you remember the story. Jonah says, if you throw me out and I sink in the sea and, and I'm no more, well, then God won't have anything to do with you either. And the storm will pass. Well, is that what's happening in Acts 27 is God sending a storm in judgment upon Paul, his servant. And the answer clearly is no. Paul has been doing everything right. He's been serving Jesus. He's been suffering for Jesus. He's been standing up for Jesus. And he's doing exactly what Jesus said he would need to do. This is actually the third time that it's underscored in the book of Acts, right? Verse 23, verse 24, do not be afraid, Paul, the angel says, you must stand before Caesar. That's the third time so far in Acts we've been told what Paul must do. First was on the Damascus Road experience, a vision comes to Ananias, and, and, and he is told that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine, that's Jesus speaking, to carry my name before Gentiles and kings. That's why Paul is here, to bring my name before kings. Then in Acts chapter 23 and verse 11, he's visited, Paul's visited, imprisoned by Jesus. And Jesus says to Paul, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must, there's that word again, you must testify in Rome. And now the angel, for the third time, do not be afraid, Paul, you must, must stand before Caesar. So what's Paul doing? He's being obedient to that commission he received. He's to stand before kings. Well, here he is standing or attempting to stand, uh, heading to Caesar as he's been told he must stand before Caesar. He's obeying the Lord. And what has it got him? Imprisonment, beatings, assassination attempts, and now a shipwreck. And so we ask, and you wonder, is Paul asking, am I doing something wrong here? This is not what you wanted. Am I being judged? Am I actually Jonah? I thought I was being faithful, Lord. Is Paul doing something wrong? No, he's doing everything right. So what is the point? Well, friends, hardships are not always a sign of God's displeasure. And that is so important for you to understand if you want to make it through the Christian life, not an embittered Christian, angry with God. Hardships are not always a sign of God's judgment or his wrath. In fact... And as hard as this is to hear and believe, hear me and then believe me. Sometimes the best place that any of us can be is right in the center of the storm that God sends our way. 
That's the safest place to be. It's the sweetest place to be. Can you trust that that's the case? I think it's easy to trust God's sovereignty when everything is smooth sailing. When life's going well, we say, praise the Lord. This is from him. What immense blessings. It's easy to trust God when it's smooth sailing. I also think it might be easy to accept God's sovereignty when he sends a storm in judgment, right? Like Jonah. I'm not saying that we would like it, but we can at least wrap our minds around it. Okay, I've done something wrong, and now uh, judgment has come upon me. That's God's sovereign plan. I, I don't like it, but I can accept it. I can understand it. But something in Acts 27 is a lot more difficult than that. Here's the question. Are you able to accept God's sovereignty, yes, even trust God's sovereignty, when he sends you a storm in response to you doing everything right? Have you ever experienced that inexplicable storm in your life? Maybe uh, as a a, a pregnant mother um, doing all the research, talking to all her friends, what's the best way I can care for this child in in pregnancy and and eating crazy diets and giving up things that she loves to ensure that this baby will be safe and then born with a terminal disease. I did everything right. Why? Or, or you're, you're a faithful employee. You're a diligent worker. And, and you, you, you've, you've sacrificed so much for your, your employer. And you come into work one day and, well, you've been let go. It comes from corporate. They're sorry, but you understand. No, I, I don't understand. I've done everything right. Your parents, maybe you felt it with your, your children. You raise your kids the right way. You catechize them in the, the home. You take them to church every week. You put them in the right youth groups. You make sure they have the right friends, get in the right kind of schooling. And yet then they announce to you one day that they've walked away from the faith. And you think, but why? I did everything right. Have you ever been in a situation that made you throw up your hands... And go, I've done what you've asked of me, Lord. Why are you doing this to me? You see, when the storm comes in life, our tendency is to immediately say something like that. What have I done to deserve this? Now, of course, our theology teaches us that's a really bad question to ask, right? What have I done to deserve this? Reformed Christians, no, don't ever ask that question. You're not going to like the answer. But just... Let's put that aside for for a moment, because I think you understand what I'm saying when I say you've done everything right. You've been faithful. You've been diligent. You've been earnest. That's what I'm saying here. I want us to recognize that where we can go wrong is assuming that hardships in life are always a sign of God's punishment or his wrath or his displeasure with us. That is not how Paul reads this storm in Acts 27. Not once. Twice over, he says, take Heart. You don't take heart when you are under the wrath of God. There's nothing to take heart about that. Paul sees it differently. That must mean that there is a different way for us also to view the sufferings of life. So how can we take heart with the Apostle Paul in the stormy trial? How can we learn to trust God's sovereignty? Uh, even when it comes, when that stormy trial comes, when we are doing seemingly everything right, when we've been faithful and yet still there's this setback, What can we do to be able to say with Paul, hey, take heart. It's all okay. I trust God's sovereignty. We need to recognize two things. First, 
Recognize that the storm, and this is perhaps the most important, the storm does not remove you from God or remove God from you. Look how Paul describes God in verse 23. The God to whom I belong. Paul's saying, I'm his. I belong to him and God never loses his belongings. The storm is not the evidence that God has lost me. In fact, God becomes even realer and closer to Paul through the storm. Uh, that, that was true back in chapter 23 when he's dealing with all the, the chaos there with the courts and the mobs. And yet Jesus appears to him right there in the middle of the storm. And now an angel appears to him. And so we affirm with the psalmist that if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even in the waves of that storm-tossed sea, like in the Mediterranean, Acts 27, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand is holding on to me. And so for the Christian, trials in life are not a time when God loses us or when we lose God. Rather, we find them to be times when we get to know God all the better. And that's something for which we can take heart. In those sublime words from Charles Spurgeon, he said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. Can you say that? Do you kiss the waves of life, the storms of life that throw you against the rock of ages? We take heart even in the storm because God is with us. That's the first thing we need to recognize about God's sovereignty. Even in the trial and the storm, we don't lose them. The second thing we need to recognize is that the storm sent by God is never an accident. Verse 25, Paul says, Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. The fact that the storm is part of God's sovereignty is good news for Paul. Paul would rather be sent into a terrible northeaster storm, a terrible uh, um, uh, life-threatening situation like they were facing there in the Mediterranean Sea. He'd rather be be sent into a, into a storm that is, as, that is as exactly as God had decreed it than be basking in the sun in a world where God had no control. Do you share that sentiment? Yes, give me the storm if it means God's in control of it. Don't give me the sunshine if it means God doesn't have a part to play in it. See, he recognizes that the storm's no accident. It's part of God's plan. Why does Paul say this why can he take heart that the storm will be exactly as he has been told which means it will the ship will run aground and they'll sink the reason is because it's only god who can write a happy ending or let me put it this way if god does not control the disasters in your life then there's no way he could ever control the deliverances and paul gets that we could put it positively If the terror that you are going through right now is from God, the triumph will also be from God. The Christian says, yes, this is a storm. This is a trial. I don't like it. I don't have to like it. I'm not saying, by the way, that you should like any of this. The Christian says, this is a storm and it stinks, but only for right now. This is exactly how God has said it would be. And that means the ending will be exactly as God has said. The ending will be. Paul takes hope in God's word even when declares a storm because his word also declares a sovereign rescue, a perfect end. He has already written at this point to the Roman church in Romans 8. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. 
Do you trust God's sovereignty? Do you trust that God is good? That he is good. Not that he does good. You do good. I do good. No, but God is goodness. It's in his nature. It's his being. He must be good all the time. Always. All trust in God assumes that he's good, says one pastor. And so do you have that trust? Yeah, this is no accident. This is part of God's plan, but that's okay. He has a good plan. This is a storm right now, but there will be deliverance soon to come. And so may we never have, in the words of Richard Baxter, low undervaluing thoughts of his infinite goodness. Oh, yeah, the Bible says he's good, but he's really not that great. That's low undervaluing thoughts of God's goodness. No, may we never have those. Instead, would we be able to sing, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul, no matter what comes, because God is with me. And God doesn't make mistakes. It's no accident. You trust in God's sovereignty. And that leads to the second question. And the final consideration. Do you trust in God's salvation? That's where the emphasis lies in our text. And these questions go together, right? If God is sovereign over all things, then certainly he's sovereign over your salvation. And that's what most matters. That you believe that he ordains your salvation. But... Here we see the emphasis, right? The reason that Paul implores the men to trust God's sovereignty is so that they will believe the good news of his promised deliverance. Verse 22, there will be no loss of life among you. Verse 24, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Paul repeatedly in this chapter is offering words of salvation and hope to the men aboard the ship. Of course, uh, he was the one to make the initial warning that they not embark on the journey. So he's that was, that was a word of salvation. Look, let's be safe and not go. They didn't listen. Uh, what else do we see? After that, he's the one who encourages the men to um, trust God's promise of deliverance. Uh, he is the one who warns Julius, who's the Roman centurion, kind of in charge of the uh, prisoners on, on board. He says, look, uh, I don't know if you noticed. This is in verse um, 30, 31, 32. Paul says, I don't know if you noticed, but all the sailors are escaping. And if they escape, nobody left knows how to run the ship and we will all die. They're trying to get out of here. They're telling you they just want to lay some anchors. No, they're trying to, they're trying to make a break for it. So, again, he saves the people in that way. He's also the one who exhorts them to take food and to eat and to sustain their bodies. He says, therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength. Not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. So we see again and again in Acts 27 in his actions and his words, Paul continually urges the people to rest in the promises of God that salvation will come and that they should act like salvation will come. And of course, God is not tricking them. We read at the conclusion of the chapter, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. And so then we have to ask this question. Why is it that God spared everybody on board? Think about that for a second. Why is it that God spared the people on board? The answer that the text gives, I think, quite clearly is because Paul was on board. Why does everybody live? Because Paul needed to live. The angel comes and assures Paul that, Paul that they're not going to go down on the ship because God had plans for Paul. Right? You must go to Rome. Likewise, it's because the centurion listens to Paul that they cut the life raft off the ship and prevent the sailors from abandoning them in the middle of the storm. And we've made this observation in previous studies that until the mission is complete, God's 
God unfailingly preserves his servants. They are invincible until their work is done. Uh, I heard a story illustrated this not too long ago. Um, I mean, I heard the story not too long ago. This is back in the 80s or 90s, probably 90s maybe. Uh, Liam Gallagher, who's the senior minister of 10th Presbyterian Church. Before that, he was ministering in Scotland. And he was aboard a, um, a plane with Sinclair Ferguson. And they were flying to uh, Philadelphia where um, Liam was taking some classes and Sinclair was teaching. He was a professor at that time, uh, although his home was in Scotland. And uh, they're on the uh, runway getting ready to take off. And um, as they're speeding up down the runway, there's a loud bang that's heard. And the engines immediately cut out and the plane skids to a stop. And they're ushered off the plane. And Sinclair and Liam are there together, this professor and this pastor. And they bump into another gentleman who was also a professor of theology from the University in Scotland. He was heading to the United States to give lectures at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. So now they had two professors and a pastor. And Sinclair looks around and he says, well, because there are two professors and one pastor, that means one of us still has work to do. And that's why the plane did not explode. And that's why we can get back on board when they tell us it's time to get back on board and we will be fine. Now, that could sound kind of flippant, But it's actually correct theology. Remember what God says to Abraham? If you find ten righteous people, I'll spare the entire cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is is how God's work. The blessing upon his people. His people sort of reverberates out and ends up blessing those who are around them. The righteousness of a few spreads out to bless those who are near them. And that's what we see in Acts 27. The favor that God has upon Paul... And his plans for Paul extend to everybody else on board so that they all enjoy this salvation gift of uh, arriving on dry ground safely. And so in a very real sense, Paul is their savior here. They didn't do anything to deserve being saved. But God has mercy on them for the sake of Paul. Do you hear the gospel? Do you see the gospel in this? The only way... That you will fully trust God's salvation and his sovereignty and his sovereign plan of salvation in your life. The only way you will fully trust his plan of salvation is when you recognize it does not hinge upon you at all. It has nothing to do with you. He doesn't save you because of you. No, you haven't done anything to deserve it or to earn it. No, you just have to believe that there is one who does deserve it and who has earned it. And as long as you are with him, everything will be okay. So why are we saved? Not because of anything we've done, but because we're found in Jesus Christ, the one who has done everything for us, the one who is not just invincible until his mission is complete, the one who is literally and truly invincible. Death cannot keep him death cannot touch him and if you're found in him death ultimately cannot touch you either not because you deserve it but because you're with him back in the 1960s d james kennedy pastor in coral ridge florida presbyterian minister started what now is known as um, the evangelism explosion international which is a training institute for um, 
uh, would-be evangelists and churches use it and so forth. It's best known by its two diagnostic questions that evangelists are to put to seekers or to non-Christians to kind of test their spiritual maturity and and hopefully get a discussion going about uh, things of um, eternal consequence. And the second question, I'm sure you've heard it before, it goes like this. Suppose you were to die today and stand before God and he was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Maybe some of you here are actually wondering that. What would I say? Would I get in? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to get in? I want to give you the best answer you could ever give if that question was posed. Why should I allow you into my heaven? As you, you look to Jesus back there sitting on the throne, the hosts of heaven bowing before him, exalted in glory, over all things. And you just need these three words. You look to him and you point to him. And you say to this question, why should I let you in my heaven? You say, I'm with him. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that salvation comes to us not because we deserve it. Uh, no, but it comes because Christ deserves it. And all who are found in Christ will find the blessings that are in him, including salvation. Lord, would we trust that this is your way? Would we trust your plan for salvation? Would we trust also, knowing that we have been saved by Christ, that there is nothing not in the heavens above or in the earth beneath. There's no principality or powers. There's nothing in all creation that can separate us from you. We need that reminder, especially as we go through the storms of life. God, that we would acknowledge that they don't remove us from your presence and that they're never accidents. But it's part of the story that you've promised us ends with these words. All things will work together for good. Give us hope and trust in that. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.